Welcome to the Product Podcast, brought to you by Product School. Here, you'll get fresh insight from the people at the very top of the tech companies who make the products we love. Remember, you can learn product management live online. Visit productschool.com to discover our new certificate path. There, you can also join the world's largest community of PMs and network with the leaders from these podcasts at our online events. There's something happening almost every day. Today, I'm here with Gibson Vito, who's the former VP of product at Netflix. Hi, Gibson. Hello, Carlos. How are you today? I'm good. What about you? I'm good. I'm down in Burlingame. It's, I think, on our seventh or eighth week of home sheltering. Uh, I've, had, I've done seven weeks of family dinners in a row. That's a new world record. My 22 and 24-year-old daughters are back home. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, gives me an amazing contributor to the community. Um, so many ways of speaking conferences, live webinars, and now a fireside chat. So I'm very happy to have you with us today. Gib, just to get things started, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, especially how did you get into product management? Oh, it's like a wild and winding path. It's never straightforward. Um, I was an English major, and then I started a sailing school, and then I wanted to be involved in a creative industry, so I started in the mailroom at an ad agency. And then I was a marketing person. And then I went to business school. And then I joined Electronic Arts in 1991 as a marketing person. And then I was really interested in building stuff. So within Electronic Arts, I switched from marketing into product there. I became an associate producer. And then I just loved it. And so I've been engaged in building products ever since. So you said that you were an associate producer. Were you aware of the term product manager at that time? Yeah, I think back then product managers, you know, I'm older than dirt. Product managers were, it was kind of a term from like consumer packaged goods like Keebler or General Mills. Uh, and, and I kind of think that Intuit borrowed that phrase and, and started experimenting with sort of the way we think about modern product management today. At Electronic Arts, they, they used the term producer because they were borrowing Hollywood industry terms. Um, so this is the early 90s. Um, now, you know, I have a strong notion of what product management needs means, and it's usually within the context of uh, technology products, which is really what I've been focused on the last couple of decades. So how has your philosophy evolved during this time based on the different experiences that you've had as a product leader in different industries and companies? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I've learned a lot and that's key. I mean, think about how quickly technology changes and, and the types of products that you're building on. Big shifts. I mean, at the beginning, I was just trying to learn how to build stuff, um, you know, get engineers and designers and data science type peeps working together. Um, and that, you know, I did some spectacularly wrong things. So then I began to learn about how important it was to carefully sort of market and package and position your ideas so they would be relevant to your customers or folks that use your stuff. Um, and so I built lots of kids software and built a successful startup uh, and I sold it. It was called Creative Wonders to the learning company. And then we sold the learning company to Mattel. And then a big learning for me was it's not enough just to build products that delight, but also products that are hard to copy. 
because I in the kids industry, I um, created essentially a fad. At some point, you couldn't get on a computer early enough. You know, I built Sesame Street Elmo's preschool or Sesame Street toddler. Um, but but what happened was we sold the learning company Mattel, and that was a disaster um, because we had failed to create hard to copy advantage. So then when I knew learned joined Netflix, I learned a lot about this. I, I call it, you know, your job is to delight customers in hard to copy margin enhancing ways. And then I started to learn a lot about what I call consumer science. So it's the idea that you can A-B test anything, you know, before, you know, in the nineties, the best you could do was talk to customers and qualitative or focus groups or do, do surveys. So it was way cool, you know, by 2005, to be able to A-B test anything, you know, let's test it. Let's see what works or doesn't. And then I was able to bring those same ideas to Chegg, which was my last um, startup, which is a textbook rental and homework help company that I noticed is doing well because they're in online learning. Yay. <laughs> I, I resonate with your definition of product management, delighting customers in, in customer enhancing, in customer enhancing ways that in, in ways that are also hard to copy. So, Going back to your time at Netflix, I'm, I'm very passionate about lifelong learning. And I'm very curious to know how can someone join an organization that is that magnitude and grow to a point that becomes a VP of product? And uh, how do you learn? How can you grow at the same pace as your company so you can continue being the best for your team? Yeah, I think the first thing is just to recognize that growth comes from companies that are healthy and growing. Um, so I had that experience at Electronic Arts. I had that experience at Creative Wonders, that startup. I had the experience at the learning company and I had the experience at Netflix. And to answer your question, uh, and so so opportunities created when companies grow. Um, you know, I generally would get promoted because I was really good at hiring and developing teams. So when somebody's looking around, who are we going to put, you know, to, to put them on the new thing? If they see that you have people who are ready to essentially take over your job. That's a good thing. So I was very effective at hiring, developing and building teams. And then on the learning, you know, I was usually passionate. I was intellectually curious, curious about stuff. Um, I, but I had one hack. I actually didn't realize until I stopped working in the last five years, I did something called topic de semaine, which is my bad French for topic of the week. And every Friday morning at nine, I would consciously teach something to my team. I mean, I love teaching. Um, and it turned out that that act of hustling on a Thursday night to figure out, you know, what the hell I would say about designing, executing, and analyzing A-B tests, for instance, forced me to learn. Um, so that was one of my hacks. Another hack is you, you have to stay close to the work. So... I, I, you know, I was expected to think at a high level, you know, strategy, et cetera, but also to be able to do and execute. At any moment in time, I, I often had to do the job of one of the swim lanes, I call them, or pods or squads, because um, it was a new one and I hadn't hired someone yet or somebody had left. But that kept me closer to the work and understanding, you know, think of it as almost a player coach role. Um, you know, early in my career, somebody gave me bad advice as you, as you grow up the details are less and less important. And, you know, in the modern era, you're expected to be able to both think and to do, to understand the execution. So that player coach role was pretty helpful to me. I think in Silicon Valley, there is um, this thing which is very common about 
you have to do things that don't scale to a certain degree until you can delegate and, and focus on the next thing. So I'm curious, just based on your experience, what are some of those things that you intentionally decided not to delegate and, and continue doing even though they didn't scale? Yeah, so you know, I'm, I'm into consumer science and consumer science, you're trying to develop consumer insight and there's really four sources for that, which are qualitative, you know, usability, focus groups, uh, surveys, asking people what they think, looking at the existing data and trying to get patterns and trends and the big dog is A-B testing. But to answer your question, I mean, we all have different sort of superpowers and I, you know, I relied heavily on qualitative and, and you know, really trying to get the voice of the customer in the head, spending time with customers in focus groups in usability. Uh, they gave me lots of great ideas and that's not scalable. Uh, but I kept doing it persistently and consistently. You know, I, I would even live stream videos of consumer research folks talking to Netflix customers in Providence, Rhode Island, for instance. I just found it was super important to me to have that constant touch point of the voice of the customer. Um, those, those other sources of consumer insight are much more scalable, the, the survey, which is you have to be careful because that's what people say as opposed to how they behave. The you know digging in the dirt with data and the big dog of A-B tests, those are much more scalable. But I, I found it super helpful to, to keep in touch via qualitative. I think the one, I already mentioned one, which was, I kept doing the teaching, right? I kept doing my Friday morning topic de semaine, uh, mainly because I, I didn't realize it, but I just loved doing that. And it was one of the tactics that I used to keep building a team that where they could scale. So the next time I got promoted, somebody would be there to fill my spot. Um, but I wasn't conscious and I just did it because I really liked it. But after the fact, I realized it was a good hack, a good way to, to just make sure you're always learning by going through the conscious act of trying to teach something. I think I love there's, that. A, there's a, isn't there a famous person who talks about that? The, you know, the way to learn something is to teach it. It's a German, I can't remember who it is. Ah, one of our listeners or watchers will figure it out for us. Yeah, hopefully I always say that teaching is the ultimate learning. I can't agree more with that. It forces you to really master something so you can extend it to another person. So that is uh, the sentiment. That's, that's what I'm trying to communicate. And and obviously it's it's much easier today to to learn in bite-sized chews, right? You you can do an hour long webinar at night or you can spend four hours going down the rat hole on medium, right? Um, so lots of opportunities to learn on the side. You know, it, it, you know, I went to business school for two years. I, I'm glad I did it, but that's not a, certainly not a requirement, requirement today. Mm -hmm. um, I also want to explore a little bit more about your routine outside of regular business hours. There are so many articles out there about how high-performing executives do wake up very early and do a lot of things, this and that, so they can be very productive at work. Were there any things, I mean, we talked about you forcing yourself to, to teach your team, but was there, was there anything else that you, you would say that you were doing that was very healthy for you to be productive and, and happy at, at work as an executive? Yeah, I might disappoint you, but I'll, I'll, I mean, it's funny because I'm thinking about COVID-19 today and in, in my, my patterns have changed. Um, in my old life, when, when our kids were two and four, my wife is a physician scientist, 
whoever woke up first would sprint to work um, because you got a little extra time for work and then you had to be home at 10 of six, you know, essentially to relieve the nanny. Um, so that's just reality. I would say the consistent, persistent thing is I, I, uh, I always made an exercise, exercise part of my routine. That just makes me feel good. Uh, and I always had, you know, side projects and hobbies, things that I love to do. So that's happened for decades for me. Um, in the last maybe five years of new reality, I, I wake up early and I go, I do yoga. Okay, I do Bikram yoga. That's the hot one. And I just do that because, um, you know, I'm trying my best to age gracefully. And I was tweaking my back like three or four times per ski season. I love to ski. And uh, so the reality is I just needed to spend more time on yoga. That's a routine that I really love. And it's a routine that I miss during the COVID-19 era. Now I wake up, I scan Twitter, email. I have various sources of data um, from the work that I do. Um, and then I just quickly sketch on Evernote, essentially a to-do list of my priorities for the day. Um, and I try to stay focused on the more important things at the top of the list in each day. It's a little like product management. Uh, Michael Sippy has got a nice definition of a very simple one of product management. He says, uh, create the list, prioritize the list and do, then execute the list in, in, in prioritized order. So I try to do that in, in sort of, you know, having daily to-dos. That's a good mental note to myself as well. It's easy to create that, that, that list, prioritize it, but then somehow get distracted with other things. Well, so. do the things that you like to do, right? Exactly. You know, like self-managing yourself is really, really hard. I mean, the job of a boss, if it's a great boss-employee relationship, uh, the only hard part is the boss occasionally has to get you to do the things that are important that you don't like to do. Um, but if you're clever and you're a highly effective self-manager, you can self-manage yourself. You just have to be conscious. You know, okay, if I stare at the true priorities for what's best for me, what's best for the company, what's best for my team, uh, and then you actually are disciplined at doing in the right order, then you don't really need a boss. Um, and all bosses love, you know, employees that can execute well with a minimum of direction. Yep. Well, that's why there are personal trainers, right? It's yeah, yeah. Half, half of the work is just show up to the gym, but then yeah, you also exactly. have to <laughs> leave the way. Yeah, yeah, we're all very undisciplined. It drives me crazy. Uh, yeah, we're humans, right? And that's funny. I, 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 uh, I do. I have a course on Teachable, and I realized, you know, people don't move through it nearly as quickly as if I have the people in the same room for a workshop. Um, so. Being human is hard. Self-discipline is hard, especially during anxious, anxiety-ridden times as today. Mm -hmm. Well, before I open up the floor to questions from the audience, I want to ask you a question about the future. You've, you've been there, you've done that, you've seen product management even before product management was cool. Now it's very hot. Like we have so, so many companies hiring product managers and people wanting to become product managers. It's, it's, it's this fundamental thing that not just tech companies, but any company needs to to organize their, their products or services. So how do you think about the future? What does the future of product management look like? Yeah, I mean, if I think about the trends in the last 10 or 20 years, I mentioned one of those, which is how important and how amazing this notion of consumer science is. 
which is you can form a hypothesis, you can uh, figure out ways to experiment with those ideas in an A-B test, and then you can analyze the results. Um, so my guess is it will continue to get much more discipline from a data point of view. This consumer science notion uh, will get harder. Um, but the good news in all of this is you still require human judgment. You know, I, I've looked at lots of A-B test results and, and there are a number of instances where all of the data says you should choose A, but then there's some higher order things, you know, some key strategic insights that actually choose, cause you to, to do B and you're doing the right thing. Uh, so that always makes me hopeful that our, we're not going to be replaced by robots, you know, human judgment about making great decisions about people, product, and the business uh, will continue to be radically important. Um, so t take a lot of state statistics, stay in math and science as long as you possibly can. Um, but I say this as an English major, right? Um, you know, the work that we do is both art and science. And combining those two notions is important. Um, and it's hard. And, and that's why um, being a product leader, being a product manager is such a fun and exciting job. So you've got a question here exactly about, about those skills. So in your experience, what are the most important soft skills that a product person can learn in order to grow in their career? Sure. Um, hard versus soft. Well, I, when I'm looking at product managers, I'll put a list of skills on the, on the whiteboard. They are technical. Um, there are management and, and probably the softest skill sitting in there is communication. That's, so that's, that's going to be my first answer. Then there's creative and creative is, gosh, honestly, is that a hard or a soft skill? Um, it's born of passion, of intellectual curiosity, of really digging deep and focusing on a problem. Um, so it's kind of a combination. I look for design skills. Those are soft. I mean, think about how hard it is to create simple experiences on a little phone today. Like, that's hard. Um, so I guess my short answer would be the, the, the management skills, especially communication. The, the, the creative work, that's really the center of our work. We get paid to create and execute on ideas that matter. And then third, that combination of art and science that has to do with design. Uh, and really the focus there is how do you keep things simple? How do you reduce um, the complexity? How do you have the discipline not to add too much crap or cut the crap that you already added? Um, so lots of good judgment uh, is required to do those things effectively. I, I have to agree. And I think UX design or design in general is very underrated. We get a lot of um, students that are engineers or management consultants. So those two backgrounds are very prominent. But I wish there were more designers thinking about becoming product people. We, and I am and confident. We can turn the tide, Carlos. Design is wicked important, right? Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's it is, overrated. It is. 
<laughs> let's, let's give uh, them props all the time. <laughs> definitely. We need more designers um, thinking product, not just uh, thinking design. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, so what would you say? I remember in one of your previous uh, answers was about there's no need to be an MBA or having a master's degree in order to be a good product manager. We get this question all the time, uh, but it's another one that is very popular about engineering. Back in the day, we, we, it's true that a lot of uh, product managers would come from a software engineering background. And um, what is your take on that? Like, how important is it having a technical degree in order to become a good product manager? Yeah. So this is one where I have to be very careful what I say. Um, so my first is this is why you need peers and mentors. And those peers and mentors, by definition, have to care about you and they have to understand you. <laughs> and they have to be willing to be candid. Um, so, because if I give advice, it's with no context, right? So I, I get worried that somebody will, will follow my advice and I have no idea who they are, what they're thinking about. The reason I went to business school a zillion years ago was I was a marketer and I realized I could learn so much about all the functions I had no experience with by two years in business school. And as much as I like teaching, I love being a student. And then I love the social experience of being together with my peers for two years. And I loved having the time to ski because I was at Tuck, which is at Dartmouth up in New Hampshire. So it worked out great for me. And I came out with a ton of confidence. Every company I sent an email to you know, was willing to interview me. So it just opened up lots of possibility today. Uh, I think if your aspiration is to build a startup from scratch, I, I think you're better off just going out and learning about building a, a startup from scratch, you know, the hard way, just by doing it. Um, so that's just, you know, one way of thinking about it. I, I guess at the end of the day, it's a very personal decision, which is, would you like to spend two years going to school with your peers and, and take the, the hit? You know, you're, you're going to be paying money as opposed to making it. Um, or do you want to engage in all the amazing educational opportunities that you can take on and bite-sized choose, which is you can read stuff on Medium, you can take online courses, you can do online workshops, like everything's virtual at this point. Um, so I just think that's a very personal decision. Uh, on the engineers, I can't offer anything. You know, a lot of my pals went on to grad school in engineering uh, and they loved it. You know, I think they loved it because of that the same reasons I did, the social experience and having time to do other stuff uh, and taking a summer off. You know, these are all good things. Um, and I can't A-B test this. I mean, I, I certainly felt good from an income point of view within two or three years. You know, landing at Electronic Arts was right place at right time. That was great for me. Uh, so it paid off for me. But, you know, my guess is I, I might have had a very similar career if I had chosen not to go to business school. I don't know. Mm -hmm. In any case, I think it's, it's refreshing for the audience to know that there is not just one path. It's not that you have to be an engineer in order to be a, a, a product manager, or you need to be a designer, or you need to be an MBA. Uh, it's more about your personal curiosity, your ability to learn and grow and, and to hustle at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. So for me, you know, I, like, if I try to simplify it, when I'm interviewing folks, I am, I, I am looking for passion. Like, are the people really are they passionate enough about the the company to really have spent a ton of time with the product are they are they do they know the space because they care about it because that turns into intellectual curiosity you know they, they just want to learn more and more and more and if you're intellectually curious then you become persistent <laughs> very persistent 
uh, and then you develop that grit. Um, so all things look being equal. If I find a person that that is passionate, whose intellectually curiosity has developed that grit for an idea, like a dog with a bone, I'm like, ooh, this person could pull it off. And even if they've got weak skills, you know, then I just test on their rate of learning. Hey. Tell me something you learned in your last job. How did you learn it? Tell me about a failure. What did you learn from it? I mean, these are all questions about how quickly do you learn? Because the reality is the set of skills that I have today are probably going to be irrelevant 15 years from now. That's how much the technology in our, in our world changes, um, which is you know, in, in doing the work of product management and working in technology, you, you have to be engaged in this continual learning. Because uh, things change really, really fast. And if you're uncomfortable with that, then, you know, go be a mountain guide. You know, stuff doesn't change as much there. Well, thank you so much for your time, Gib. Uh, this has been fantastic. We've been recording this interview, so we'll be able to offer it to the audience to consume on demand as well. And uh, it was very helpful. So, um, Great. Carlos, thanks. Is anything else you want to add? And uh, thank you, Product School peeps and Product School for having me today. It's been great fun. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Product Podcast. If you liked this episode, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. For more product insights, head over to productschool.com.